Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin. And I'm Kimberly Robinson. So, Kimberly, we're going to talk to the lawyer who won a recent death penalty case at the Supreme Court. Well, you're just going to, like, intro us like it's normal here and not something momentous that's happening today? Well, it's true. There's no way to know this if you're just listening, but we are finally back in the studio clearing out the cobwebs here. First time since the old COVID hit. And I would never say this out loud, Kimberly, but it's good to be back. It is good to be back. Well, I don't know. Let's see. Maybe it's not good to be back. Maybe we should go home and do this. All right. We'll see how it goes. We're going to have on a guest to talk about his recent 8-1 victory at the Supreme Court in the Ramirez case. But first, let's talk about a little Supreme Court news. What's the latest with KBJ? Is she going to make it? It does seem like she's going to make it. Um, We're starting to hear senators weigh in on whether or not they're going to support her nomination um, or vote no. And there really haven't been a lot of surprises. Um, We talked before about how uh, Joe Manchin said he was going to vote in her favor, which pretty much stinches it up for Democrats. It looks like um, she's going to pick up at least one Republican vote in Senator Susan Collins. Whether or not she'll get any more will remain to be seen. A big no, though, that we had sort of as a question mark, mm-hmm. maybe before the confirmation hearings, but not during after them, was Lindsey Graham. He has confirmed that he will not be voting for Jackson's confirmation. Well, we might have Jackson confirmed next week, depending on how it goes, right? That's right. It, right now it's looking like, you know, as early as next Thursday um, or Friday. So definitely moving along here. So, Kimberly, before we talk to our guest, anything else going on at the court this week? Yeah. So the court had its last week of the March sitting and Justice Thomas uh, was still not in the courtroom. And hearing a lot about this Justice Thomas character these days has been getting around or not. He's not leaving his house for arguments. That's right. So uh, just kind of to wind back the clock and remind uh, listeners that Friday before the March sitting was getting ready to kick off. Justice Thomas went to the hospital. The court told us about that on Sunday, uh, probably because it was going to be pretty obvious that um, if showed up and there were only like eight justices there. Um, but that's really it. They told us when he was discharged from the hospital, uh, but... You know, he hasn't been coming to the court, even though he's out of the hospital. So uh, not really much more to report there. We don't even know exactly what was even wrong with him, right? That's right. You know, there's strong indications that it was not COVID, um, according to the court. uh, But they just used vague language like an infection or flu-like symptoms. That makes it even weirder, kind of, because if it's COVID, then it's okay. That's what's going around these days. But interesting. It's the second oldest justice after Breyer. Yeah, I mean, I would say this is sort of par for the course for the court. And I don't know how much, you know, really the court gets to say uh, about these things or if it's each individual justice. But, um, you know, early in the pandemic, we heard from a news report that Chief Justice Roberts had fallen and busted his head open and, um, you know, had to go see a doctor for that. And, you know, there was no news from the court on it. Mm -hmm. Um, It just came because somebody happened to see him fall outside of his country club. So, um, you know, this is kind of the way it goes for for the Supreme Court, at least now. I I think the notable exception to that was uh, Justice Ginsburg, who often gave very detailed um, information about her diagnoses. Well, On that sort of morbid note, shall we start to turn over to our guests, or is there any other court news to talk about? 
Well, I guess just one thing to wrap up while we're talking about Thomas mm. is there has been a little bit more uh, news on the whole controversy surrounding his wife, Virginia, known as Ginny Thomas, and her uh, political activities. It looks like now she's bought herself a subpoena to the January 6th commission. Um, still have I don't think that's happened just yet, but there have been several indications from um, commissioners that they want to um, have her in to chat about her role. And this is while people are calling for Thomas to have recused from related cases and even to resign or even be impeached if he doesn't resign. It's not really super clear what the case for that would be at this time, but it'll be interesting to see if anything comes out from the January 6th investigation that's more of a direct link with the justice. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this issue right now is still kind of bubbling its way up to the Supreme Court, and there's a pretty good chance that, you know, we see some more... um, you know, more cases come to the justices and the question will be, you know, what does Justice Thomas do? I have a hard time seeing him recuse. What do you think? Um, so it'd be like an acknowledgement that there's something to this general complaint and it's implicating his wife. And it's just obviously anything with recusal is personal, but this is so political and so personal. And so it would seem like a real concession on his part to recuse whether or not he should. I guess the only thing that I pushed back on a bit is that, you know, the court has written even in its rulings talking about how uh, judicial ethics is different than, you know, kind of ethics in politics and that, you know, in politics is all about actual quid pro quo corruption. And with judges, it's really about the appearance. So you could make an argument that while nobody knew that there was this kind of conflict before, maybe, you know, there wasn't an appearance of bias. Um, Now everybody knows about it. Uh, I'm not sure that's a great argument, but... Well, right. It's tough because you have to say, you know, it's the Watergate thing. What did he know and when did he know it? Now we know mm-hmm. what Ginny was texting Mark Meadows, but we don't know exactly what Justice Thomas knew at the time that he ruled in January on the January 6th committee documents. So Let's stick a pin in that because I think that there will be more to say about this um, in the coming months. That's true. And a lot of that discussion was from the 8-1 ruling that he dissented on when it came to the January 6th committee. And we're going to be talking about another 8-1 ruling that he dissented on in the Ramirez case. Coincidence? That was one of the clumsiest switch-offs. That was good. (laughs) So before we bring on Seth Kretzer, who just argued the Ramirez case successfully, I'll give a little bit of background. Over the past few years, the Supreme Court's been dealing with this issue of religious advisors at executions. It really blew up back in 2019 when the court let the execution of Dominique Ray go forward in Alabama without his imam in the chamber. After that, in the case of a Buddhist inmate in Texas, Patrick Murphy, the court granted a stay because the state wasn't going to let his spiritual advisor in the chamber. Texas had a rule that only let state-employed Christian or Muslim ministers in the chamber. At the time... Justice Kavanaugh said one way Texas could solve the problem is to bar ministers of all faiths altogether. Texas said, hey, that sounds good. But that led to further challenges from inmates, including John Ramirez, whose case we're going to be talking about. He wants his pastor to pray aloud and lay hands on him during his execution. Texas opposed that. And as we mentioned briefly on last week's episode, Ramirez just won his case at the Supreme Court in an 8-1 opinion written by Roberts with Thomas dissenting. Let's talk to the lawyer who argued the case. 
Seth Kretzer is a lawyer based in Houston, Texas. He recently won an 8-1 ruling at the Supreme Court for death row prisoner John Ramirez. It was an unusual case on multiple levels, and we're happy to have Seth on to give us an inside look. Thanks, Seth, for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. So before you came on, we gave some brief background on this religion at execution issue. Can you tell us how you got involved in John Ramirez's case and how it fits into this broader landscape of these types of claims? Uh, Sure. I was appointed for Mr. Ramirez's habeas case. In other words, he was in federal habeas, obviously follows state habeas. And in 2017, the presiding federal district judge in Mr. Ramirez's hometown of Corpus Christi uh, granted him habeas relief, removed his prior habeas lawyer, and appointed me to see and develop if there were any potential uh, successor claims to raise in federal habeas. While we were unsuccessful in winning on any of those additional claims, as Justice Roberts pointed out at the beginning of the opinion that issued last week, that had the functional effect of moving Mr. Ramirez's execution date uh, back several years. In the year 2020, the state moved for an execution date at the same time that numerous challenges, most obviously with the Buddhist to the spiritual advisor issue, was ruminating in the courts. The prison withdrew that death warrant. They issued a new policy, which said, unlike the previous policy, any minister can now come into the execution chamber. And we proceeded for the next six months toward that execution date in September of 2021 until we realized there were these invisible holes in the policy. And that is really where the case caught fire. Right. And so I mentioned at the beginning that this case was unusual in a number of ways. These death penalty cases, a lot of them are being litigated in terms of stays and injunctions and not necessarily making it onto the merits docket. And so can you talk a little bit about how this case wound up coming off of the shadow docket and whether you were expecting that to happen at all? I can answer the last part of your question first, Jordan. I was not expecting that to happen uh, at all. In Mr. Ramirez's case, uh, this is not a a posture in which presented to the Supreme Court. This was not a federal habeas case. Uh, This was, in fact, a federal civil rights action. So the same statute, Section 1983, where people litigate against police brutality and so forth, that has its own set of laws that allows one to vindicate rights are guaranteed to religious inmates. Uh, All of these spiritual advisor challenges, starting with the Buddhist gentleman in Texas in 2019, Mr. Murphy, for the next three years, there were a series of these cases that went back and forth between Texas, Alabama, as the Supreme Court was staying one execution after another. And all of these had been resolved on what I think is somewhat pejoratively called the shadow docket. Mr. Ramirez's case came up as execution on September 8th. They decided not only to stay the execution of Ramirez, but also to grant merits review. That was a huge surprise in for several reasons. One, because none of these prior executions had been taken up on merits review, and also because the federal statute under which prisoners sue to vindicate their constitutional rights has only been argued once before in a full merits panel of the Supreme Court in a case involving Muslim inmates out. Arkansas, who wanted to grow their beard. So in that sense, I had no idea that they would grant merits review, uh, much less stay the execution. Right. And so it actually goes even further than that, right, in terms of the unusual nature of it, because it wasn't just that you had full review granted, but the court expedited it on top of that, right? So can you, going back to that time, talk a little bit about what that was like, just having to deal with not just this perhaps unexpected grants, but then having to deal with it on a sped up timeline. 
It's a feature during a modern American life that the Supreme Court, that just about everything gets its turn of being expedited. Uh, my case was expedited in the sense that its execution was stayed on September 8th, and the merits brief was due three weeks later, uh, September 29th, I think it was, and then the oral argument was set for October 1st. As we proceeded closer to October 1st, they called from the Supreme Court and said they were actually moving it back later in October because the SB8 oral argument was being sped up to October 1st. Since my argument for Mr. Ramirez in November, I think the Remain in Mexico policy, the vaccine case, uh, different abortion challenges, voting rights cases, everything has had its chance to be uh, expedited. So whether or not something's called expedited or not, the Supreme Court is still going to rule. It was a tremendous challenge, obviously, to produce a merits brief in only 21 days. Uh, so uh, we got a lot of amici briefs, front of the court briefs in this case. And I think, that's, I think it was the Beatles who had that song, I get by with a little help from my friends. So fortunately, we had a lot of friends in this case, uh, which was able to have a lot of firepower behind the argument that Mr. Ramirez made in the Supreme Court. And you you mentioned that, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about what it's like to work under that, you know, intense press timeline. Wondering if you could talk a little bit, too, about kind of the victory that you guys were able to secure here. So you did win eight to one, but ultimately that still means that um, Mr. Ramirez is going to be executed. So what's it what's it like to work on a case where, you know, ultimately that's, you know, that's the victory that you're you're looking for? Well, sure. I don't think even uh, the strongest proponent of death penalty would say that anyone is a victor uh, here. I've represented numerous inmates on Texas death row, several of whom have been uh, executed. The issue is not delay. I don't do delay tactics. I'm not trying to throw gum up the works or throw sand in the gears or some such uh, metaphor. The issue is whether or not the state is going to comply with federal laws that passed Congress unanimously and were signed into law by President Clinton over 20 years ago, requiring prisons to respect the religious rights of inmates. That's different because it's about every faith system in the world, to my knowledge, has its own rights surrounding the point in time someone dies. I think you have to remember that for decades, the state of Texas allowed pastors in the execution chamber with the inmates to touch them, to pray with them, to do all the things that ministers do at that point in time when you're getting close to death. This only became an issue a few years ago when they did not want to accommodate the Buddhist minister, and they proceeded to a series of policy prevarications in the three years since, which has only created a lot more litigation. I'm not here trying to judge anyone morally. I'm not tasked with looking at what I think is necessarily the value charge words right or wrong. My job as a lawyer is to make sure that we protect not only Mr. Ramirez's rights, but I would argue somewhat more largely uh, the Constitution of the United States. So we mentioned this was an 8-1 ruling, and I think that that seems to kind of align with at least what I thought anyway when the case was granted. It seemed like there would perhaps be even more than a bare majority who agreed with you for various reasons. At the argument, though, to me anyway, it seemed like there was a little more pushback against your position than I expected. I'm wondering, Seth, if you were at all surprised with how the ultimate numbers came out in the case. Oh. I was surprised, Jordan, that it came out 8-1. to one. I was not expecting uh, that. You may recall at the time, the day after the oral argument, the Washington Post reporter said they thought perhaps I might win by a 5-4. to four. Uh, Bare majority, most of these controversial cases in our Supreme Court in modern times, recent years, have come out by smaller numbers. I was not surprised that the justices gave me strong pushback. I've done criminal defense work, death penalty appeals of a 
uh, cases of the type uh, for many years. I mean, you can imagine when you represent a criminal or someone on death row, uh, one is not expecting the justices to say, thank you for coming. We hope you had uh, a nice flight. If you're going to ask them to afford legal relief to some of the most detestable people in society, I think it's fair to expect that the justices are going to really, really push you hard and ask not only why is your client entitled to this relief, obviously it's not as though uh, the victim got the sort of relief when he was uh, killed, but what is going to be the practical effect in all the other cases? Every appeals court, not just the Supreme Court, has to look not just what's going to happen to this one individual in front of me, but what is going to happen to all the other mass of people out there who are going to want their day in court. So while I certainly was not expecting to win by eight to one, I certainly was expecting to be pushed very, very hard by uh, at least the conservative justices. And that's what happened back in November. And so you mentioned that a lot of times these cases come out five to four and and are pretty close. A lot of times, actually, most of the time with this court, they tend to come out the other way. And that is against um, the death row inmate. And it seems to me that what really made uh, a big difference here was the role that religion was playing and the way that the Roberts Court has really um, kind of embraced a really robust protection um, for freedom of religion. Is that how you read it as well? And do you have anything more to say about that? Well, when I say uh, usually criminal defendants, death row inmates lose five to four, I've certainly fall into that category myself. My one prior time to argue in the Supreme Court was a death penalty case, and we did lose five to four, and the client was executed uh, about one year later. The fact that one might lose, even narrowly, certainly should not discourage anyone from bringing these cases. And the two death penalty cases now that I have argued in the Supreme Court of the United States, I can tell you unequivocally the very first hearing in federal court in either case was in front of the Supreme Court of the United States. So we lost the trial court, lost the circuit, and then you saw what happened in the uh, Supreme Court here. I think without saying that there's a larger conservative bent in the world of religion, if one can couch something in religious terms, you're more likely to win your legal argument. I think it has to be remembered that religion goes back thousands of years. The role of religion at the time of death, to my knowledge at least, is seen in its various forms in every religion in the world especially the role of religion at the point in time at which one is executed. We afforded religious advisors to the Nazis after Nuremberg before we executed them. George Washington afforded the soldiers who committed treason to the British a spiritual advisor before they killed them. Even the Union soldiers allowed the conspirators who killed Abraham Lincoln spiritual advisors before they executed those folks for seditious conspiracy. In ancient England, they had the minister would ride with the condemned in a wagon up to a rope, and then they would drive the cart away after the rope had been put on the person's neck, and he would hang to death. So literally, the minister was with the condemned until the very moment that they died. If a conservative justice is inclined towards historical arguments. I think in Mr. Ramirez's case, we had just about the strongest, deepest bench of historical arguments one could possibly imagine. And that is not an activist position. I would argue that is a traditionalist position. I wonder if we could talk a bit about what might happen next, because as we discussed, this was happening in a preliminary posture. And to some extent, it is up to the state the next move in a way, right? And so I'm wondering if we could talk a bit, Seth, just about what the next steps might be and whether this execution will go forward and perhaps when. Well, the answer to your question, Jordan, is some of those questions, as you 
stated are best addressed to the uh, lawyers for the attorney general's office. It is certainly correct. The next move is literally up to the state. In Texas, execution dates are not set in a vacuum. The state is required to move for a death warrant. The presiding state district judge, in this case a district judge in Oasis County, Texas, has to sign the death warrant. And under Texas state law, that has to be at least 90 days in the future. So at the minimum, we'd have to be at some three months out before you could have an execution. As a functional matter, you can imagine that the state doesn't like to lump these together because there's so much litigation associated with them. So they'll have to find a date that they want to set if they intend to proceed with Mr. Ramirez's execution. As we sit here right now, nobody has called me to tell me where they intend to do that. Uh, In Mr. Ramirez's case, we still have the pending 1983 petition on file. As you've mentioned at the outset, this case did arise in a preliminary fashion, by which I mean I filed for a motion for temporary restraining order, which under the circumstances of the execution, as I just described it, it requires a state judge to sign a new death warrant to get a new execution date. It does function very much more like one would conventionally associate a temporary injunction. With regard to what the prison is going to do in regard to their written protocols, that is somewhat a nuanced answer to your question in that the prison put out a press release earlier this week where they said they are not going to change their written protocol, and yet no lawyer for the attorney general's office has filed anything in the case in which I'm counsel of record or otherwise communicated to me what they intend their official position to be. So uh, quite simply, you can see the Texas prison statements are not going to change their written protocol at all. What legal positions they are going to take is something they're going to have to work out in their office and uh, something they're going to have to make clear to the presiding federal district judge. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I hadn't heard that about the release from Texas saying they weren't changing the protocol. So then is the is the execution able to go forward in the way that Mr. Ramirez wants it to under that protocol? That is a Good and wise question, Jordan. Also one that you should probably address to the lawyers for the state uh, attorney general's office. You know, I mean, I'm limited. I guess I can't practice law for these folks. I can't tell them what legal position uh, to take. The reason that I believe that the state would not be well served to maintain the written protocol, which was so problematic, is because the prison made clear last year that there are invisible holes in this protocol that only they can see through. In other words, the prior protocol said you may not have any minister in the execution chamber. They changed that. In 2021, the new protocol says you can have any minister in the execution chamber. There is not a word in that protocol about what a minister may or may not do once he or she gets in there. And so for the state to say we're going to make it up at the time, we're going to women Capri decide in the moment when we decide it, I would predict that that would be very alarming to the presiding federal district judges across this state, because if the state is all about ambiguity, perhaps even studied ambiguity, they want to keep the uh, inmate on his toes. Lawyers, unfortunately, and specifically federal judges, are very big on precision. They want very precise legal documents. Think real estate title that shows meets and bounds. I think they want to know exactly what the prison is going to allow and what it is not going to. And fortunately, Jordan, they don't have to take my word for it or even uh, reinvent the wheel. The state of Alabama about a year ago got the proverbial memo when Justice Kavanaugh said he was not going to allow these to go forward and the state would be better served to go negotiate this with the inmates. The 
federal judge in Alabama had a series of, I would take it almost like a mediation where everybody came in and negotiated, and he entered an incredibly lengthy, I think five single-page, single-spaced order as to exactly what the pastor could or could not do. I mean, take a look at it. It says the pastor can speak in thus many decibels and stand at thus many feet away, and he can bring a cross or a Star of David or a Muslim uh, moon. He's even allowed to anoint the inmate's head with oil, and it specifies the type of oil that the pastor may bring. And that uh, exacting level of detail allowed this execution. It was from a man named Mr. Dunn, the UNN. He was executed about six weeks before Mr. Ramirez's oral argument. Yeah, that was one, you know, part of the opinion and even in some of the separate opinions that really stuck out to me um, was that, you know, not only did they say, you know, that there has to be some kind of accommodation here and you you guys need to figure it out. Um, but they also gave, went at length to give suggestions on how jails might do that and how states might go about organizing that. Um, and it seemed more like uh, the job of what like a legislature or part of the executive branch might do and not something we typically see in um, judicial opinions. But maybe that's because, you know, the stakes are so high here. It's also, I would argue, I agree with everything you just said, but I think there's also a human dimension. I can tell you one of the most personally grueling things I've ever had to do, or maybe grueling things I've ever had to do in my professional life, is watch the television interviews with the anguished family members of the victim, Pablo Castro, the day the execution was stayed. And be more specific, these folks whose father and grandfather, uncle respectively, were taken from them very quickly and without a chance to say goodbye at this point 18 years ago, started the day of September 8th at the Crime Victims Plaza on the beach in Corpus Christi. They released balloons into the sky, ceremonially casting off their grief, drove some five hours to Huntsville where they sat in the viewing area of the execution chamber until about 10 o'clock at night when they were told the Supreme Court stayed this execution. You all can go home and come back at some uncertain point in the future. I think the psychological toll on these folks, not just the victims in Mr. Ramirez's case, but across the country, is absolutely excruciating. The victims are entitled to closure, just as Mr. Ramirez is entitled to uh, a minister at the point in time in which he is executed. The word compassion is an interesting word. It's a Greek word. It means with suffering. And if the suffering for all the interested parties is to end, the state is quite simply going to have to swallow their pride or however they want to characterize it, but accommodate well-recognized historical rights to spiritual guidance at the point in time when you're executed, not just to function as a legislature, but because of the palpable interest in alleviating the suffering, the psychological suffering on the part of the victim's family, like the victims in Pablo Castro's situation. Well, thank you so much for coming and chatting with us. This has been really helpful, and um, we appreciate you taking the time to share your experience in this case. Thank you all very much for your interest in the case. Okay, Jordan. So back to the eight ones. Uh, you know what's really interesting? I was looking at I was looking at some of these stats. Uh, we've got sixteen opinions decided so far this term in argued cases, and you know the justices like to tout that you know while we in the media always you know note their division in these big high profile cases, they like to note that they're actually unanimous like more than half of the time. Uh, so unfortunately for them, this term doesn't, I suspect that's not going to pan out for them this term. And that's because, you know, early in the term, we typically get, you know, unanimous rulings from the court. Um, but this term, 
Of the 16 cases, only five of them have been unanimous. And, um, you know, they still got a lot of hard ones to go that I suspect are going to be pretty divisive. And that is because they have had an unusual number of eight to one rulings, including these two that we've talked about. Um, and it's really brought, uh, Thomas that seems to be messing it up for them. I can see them sharpening up a talking point a little bit, say something like, generally unanimous or <laughs> yeah. sure Roberts has a team working on it and then they'll distribute a memo to the to the group that's going out and doing the PR tours. Yeah, it's interesting. One of these, you know, I mean, three of them came from Thomas, one from Breyer, one from Sotomayor, and the one from Gorsuch, I remember he even said, you know, something along the lines of, man, this case is so small and, you know, but I, I just can't help myself. I got to dissent by myself. So how do we get out of this podcast? Uh, well, we will, well, half of us will be back next week. I am signing off to take a much-needed vacation. So Jordan will be holding down the fort here at the podcast. But until then, you can follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com. You ever thought to yourself, how is that legal? Why is that legal? You ever seen a big trial in the news and wondered, what's really happening there? Have you ever pondered the question, why are lawyers the way that they are? And how much money do they really make anyway? These are the things we live and breathe at On The Merits, Bloomberg Law's weekly legal news podcast. On The Merits looks into the biggest stories playing out in the legal industry right now, and we feature the finest journalists covering the biggest legal stories from across the Bloomberg Law newsroom. On The Merits is hosted by me, David Schultz, and you can hear it wherever fine podcasts are found. Thanks for listening.